0: Welcome to the dream for others podcast. I'm Naomi Arnold, an award-winning business and life passion coach, writer, speaker, and human rights activist. This show features inspiring conversations with those who use their platform, passions, and uniqueness to make a difference in the world. If you are big hearted, open-minded, a lifelong learner, and are on a mission to help create a better world. This is the podcast for you. Now let's get started and dream for others. Today I am honored to have Rosie Molinari on the Dream for Others podcast. She is a radical self-acceptance champion who uses profound questions and wholehearted connection to empower people to treat themselves well so they can connect with their talents and passions to authentically and intentionally live their purpose and help heal the world. Rosie is the author of two books, teaches at the University of North Carolina, serves as a national Dove self-esteem project educator, offers workshops and retreats and speaks on self-acceptance, body image, self-care, media literacy, the Latina experience and intentional living across the country. She also serves as a creative catalyst to companies and brands that wish to provide a synergistic, empowered and soulful experience to their clients and employees as they serve the world through workshop and retreat facilitation and consultation. And to add to all this brilliance, Rosie is a committed activist who helped found HAMMERS, a non-profit initiative to provide emergency home repair for low-income families in her community. And also Circus Deleuze, a nonprofit that radically empowers young Latinas by supporting their transformation through extensive mentoring, holistic programming, and scholarship funds for further education. As you can probably guess from all of this, Rosie has a wealth of experience and wisdom around dreaming for others and using our passions and uniqueness for good. I can't wait to hear what she has to say and to share this with you today. Hi, Rosie. Thank you so much for joining me on the Dream for Others podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. And I don't know what the time is over there, but it's a beautiful warm morning here. So thank you for making time out of your day to,
1: to have a chat about everything
0: that you've been doing.
1: I am so happy to be finishing my day with you. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> All right. Well, we might just begin
0: if you could tell me a bit about your story and where you've, I guess, found your interest in helping others and and I know activism as well Let's
1: start to begin. Sure. So my family is from Puerto Rico, and we moved to the United States when I was two. And um, my dad was in the military, and so I grew up partially on a military base, and it was pretty diverse and families just were um, extensions of each other. We all helped each other, especially when dads were away on military tours. And um, I think that was really formative in my sort of understanding of community growing up. And especially since having moved to the U.S., we didn't have family here. And so You know, I think my parents did a really good job of modeling that you create family and you create connection and you find your community um, and you show up for one another. And so I, um, my dad retired when I was in elementary school and we moved off the military base. And um, I grew up in a community that didn't have a lot of Latinos, but was pretty diverse otherwise. And so I don't, there were moments where I felt really different, but not a lot. But then when I went to, um, to college, I really, I went to a college that wasn't very diverse and I really stood out as different. And for me, that was a, a big moment of of thinking through accepting myself and really kind of reconciling how I was different, Um, not just ethnically, even body type wise, but also socioeconomically and values wise. And um, during my collegiate experience, I happened to have a scholarship that was for community service, and so the expectation was that I would do 20, ten hours of community service a week um, in exchange for the scholarship. And I was really interested in education. I was particularly interested in underresourced schools. And while I was in college doing this volunteer work, I was particularly interested in young men who were gang-affiliated. That just became a real passion point for me and um, a place where I found, I have um, sort of developed over time, a gentle directness and um, it it worked well for those young men for my approach and sort of conversation and um, connection. And so uh, that was for me a really great um, experience and sort of de- a. a Deep dive into purpose. And I ultimately designed a major um, at my university in African American studies and urban education issues, and um, did a senior thesis that looked at how schools could be viable support networks to reduce youth violence and really empower under resourced communities. And started my career out of out of college as a high school teacher, which was really thrilling and powerful for me. And and we'll talk about this more later, but I thought that would be my career for, for 40 years and somebody would pull me out of the classroom kicking and screaming and then kicking and screaming and then life happened, which we'll talk about more. But the big thing that happened for me is in those years of teaching, my students had backgrounds that were really similar to mine. They were 1st generation American. They spoke a different language at home. They were the dominant English speaker in their family and were responsible for being the conduit um, to American society for their parents. And um, they were poor. And those were all things I really related to. And yet my students really struggled with finding a voice. And that for me was an interesting piece because I found that as I reflected back on my history I'd had a voice when I was young. And so I started really looking at how to help young people have a voice. And I think that was the moment where I found my purpose in the world, which was around voice and around empowering people to to use their voices, to find their voices and use them. And if they couldn't yet get to their voices, that I had a responsibility to allow those voices to be heard. And so that for me, I think, is where I really started understanding what my contribution to the world could be and perhaps some of the ways that it could be manifested.
0: It sounds like this beautiful concoction of you know, personal experience and education and self-awareness and social awareness all brewing with like curiosity and then acting on it and... <laughs> And having all this stuff come to life that really matters for yourself, and obviously for community, and 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 those who feel they are different, and helping give them that voice—it's
1: just incredible to listen to. You know, and I think that's what happens for so many of us: is we have this thing that feels like a maelstrom and a mess. And then, if we're able to just to to sort of take the long view of it, we can start to see. The, see these threads of meaning. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think at the time I, you know, couldn't put that all together. I couldn't quite figure it all out. But then as I asked questions and sort of dug deeper, I started seeing this through line. And I think for me, that's been this big illumination point is that if you grab a hold of what makes you feel passionate, you'll find your through line to your purpose. Um, and you know, back then I just, felt like, oh, I just keep walking into these really messy situations and I've got to figure them out. And then what I found was deep, deep meaning once I got quiet.
0: Yes. Oh, that's beautiful. You know what? You said so many things then that were just uh, like jumping out in my head and sparkling and going, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and such beautiful, articulate things that you can just quote and put out there for <laughs> inspiration <laughs> to people. Oh, that's sweet of you to say. <laughs> How did you then use what you had learned, that, that passion that you had built? And I know you started to then infuse it into your work and into your books and, and into nonprofits that you established. Right. So what happened from there?
1: So if you asked me at 22 what I expected from my life, I thought that I would be a career educator, a career secondary educator, that I would be involved in high school education until I retired, whether I, you know, I primarily thought I'd be a high school teacher, but I thought, well, maybe I'll go into administration one day. And what sort of two things happened that then sort of put me on this other path, which is still in education, but looks different now. And one is that I, the first thing that happened was that I really was troubled by my students' lack of voices and um started doing some reflection on was it fair to ask them to have a voice at 16 and did I have a voice at 16 and what i realized was that i did have a voice at 16 but that's primarily because i was an avid journal keeper that's how i processed most of what i experienced for some different reasons a i think naturally it's part of who i am but also b i think that when i had difficult moments coming of age in the united states I was sensitive to the fact that I didn't want to share those difficult moments with my parents because I wanted them to feel good about their decision to raise me in the United States. Um, And I also was really aware that we could move back to Puerto Rico at any time and that the opportunities for women were really different in Puerto Rico than they were in the U.S. and, and that I was really interested in the opportunities that would be afforded to me by growing up in the US. And so I felt protective of my parents and those experiences. And so where I turned to to process them um, was my journal. And so I started using writing a whole lot in my classroom. Um, I wasn't an English teacher. I was primarily a history teacher, um, but used writing a lot in terms of having my students unpack social issues in class. And after three years of teaching, I, A, was really sick, which I'm going to talk about a little bit later, but B, also was really aware that I had sort of exhausted everything I knew about using writing as a tool. And I thought, well, I should go get a master's in fine arts and creative writing so that I, I can be an even better to, you know, use this tool even better in the classroom, and so I decided to get a master's. And while I did that, my master's program in writing, I took a job at the university where I'd graduated as an undergrad um, as their director of community service, which really sort of in you know put me um, at the forefront of the university's relationship with the community and how we could be of service and. Um, managing the same scholarship that I used to have and um, looking at solution, how we could be part of the solution of community issues. And so during that time, I, um, you know, the big thing we emphasized in this was looking at holistic solutions to community challenges. And I was serving on a board for a nonprofit that worked on affordable housing issues in in the small town where I lived and where this college is. And we, what we did was provide affordable housing. We built affordable housing and provided at, at rates that teachers, police officers, firemen could afford because we lived in a town that was, um, the housing stock was, was quickly pricing people out of town and we wanted to keep sort of the diversity that the town had always, historically had. But one of the things that struck us as we were doing this work on providing new houses were that there were small towns and small houses in the town um, that people had lived in for years. They were paid off, but had leaking roofs or the people were now handicapped and the home wasn't accessible for them. And so we had neighbors who lived in homes that were technically affordable for them because they were paid off, but they weren't safe for them. And that felt as much, as much of an injustice as not having affordable housing available to a wide array of neighbors. And so at the time that I was on the board, I, you know, I just was, I was, I'd be running and I would see a house with a tarp on its roof and just think, you know, what a shame that, you know, these people have had this house for 50 years and they can't afford to get the roof fixed. And so that led to um, the creation of a program called Hammers that does emergency home repair in our town. And we just put together a cross section of people to focus group and sort of brainstorm around, you know, how do you solve this problem? And ultimately Hammers became an extension, um, an offering from the existing nonprofit that I was on the board of and is still That was, I guess, in 2003 and is still going today. Um, You know, and, and what Hammers does is just provide emergency repairs to families who, you know, can't afford to have significant home repairs done to their house. And so for me, I think that I've always had this pretty pronounced sense of justice. I had it as a kid around little things, like I remember feeling like, when my siblings were allowed to do something and I wasn't because I was younger, being like, that's not fair. <laughs> um, and and I still sort of have that pronounced sense of justice. And so now I have a better sense of where, like, that I can't respond to every single thing that I think is unjust and have the energy to sustain myself. And so I feel like I have a better sense of how to, to manage those things now. Um, but I do, in general, tend to have a, rea- a visceral reaction to things that aren't fair and wanting to figure out how to solve them mm. and even though you you are
0: more focused on which ones you've still got your, your what do they say thumb in a lot of pies there with a lot of injustices <laughs> that are out there. you're definitely helping progress many of them. Yeah <laughs> yeah so that was our hammers came about, and I know yeah. that you have a another program or nonprofit
1: as well. How did that one come about? Right. So as I mentioned, I started my career as a high school teacher. And so Mm -hmm. that age group is just a sweet spot for me. And so when my first book came out, which is called Hijas Americanas, Beauty, Body Image, and Growing Up Latina, and it's the coming of age stories of Latina women in the US, I went on tour for that book and I went to a lot of universities. And often I would get there in the morning, but I was speaking at seven at night. And so one of the things that I would ask whoever my host was, was if if there was a nearby middle school or high school where I could spend the afternoon um, and I'd be happy to do whatever the school wanted me to do. And sometimes the school would say, oh, we'd love for you. You know, you're a published author. Could you speak to our English classes? But most times what they said was we would love to get a small group of Latina girls together to speak with you. We don't have a lot of Latina role models and we think that'd be great. And so inevitably in those conversations, I asked the girls what they were interested in doing, what their dreams and hopes were, and they had big dreams. They wanted to be veterinarians and dance teachers and math teachers and doctors and these really exciting things. And the reality at that time, and so this was about 2007, was that 44 percent of Latino girls did not graduate from high school. 51% of them had a pregnancy before the age of 20 and only 10% of Latinos in general had a degree past high school. And so I would hear these girls say their dreams and then I would get in my car and leave and say, all of those dreams take a college degree, one in 10 get a college degree, which one of those girls gets it? Like, And that for me was just haunting. And so as I would come back at home and my friends would ask about this tour and how it was going, I'd say, great, but I'm just so, you know, haunted by these conversations and somebody should do something about that. Yeah. Inevitably my friends, because they're lovely this way, would say, well, what what could be done? And so those conversations led to these, you know, deep brainstorms about what could be done. And ultimately, I just thought, well, I'm going to invite a bunch of very diverse women to some dinners. And they were just pizza dinners um, around a dining room table and some salad on the side. And I sort of proposed, like, here's the situation. What do you think could solve the problem? And of that was born a nonprofit called Circle de Luz, which is Circle of Light, And we start working with Latina girls when they're seventh grade. And we follow them until high school graduation. And over that time, they get really intensive mentoring. They experience um, programs that are really diverse. We have a developmental model of 12 different themed areas where girls need to experience programs each year. Um, They get some really deep mentorship. They get very specialized guidance on their individual college research and scholarship application process. Um and when the girls graduate from high school they each get a minimum of a $5,000 scholarship from us to support their plans post high school. And so we've had three graduating classes so far and all of our girls have graduated from high school. All of them but one are in college and the one who's not in college joined the military and it's just a really incredible experience. It's been just the not to to be too punny since it's Circle de Luz, but it has been the light of of my life. I mean, it just really has been a profound privilege to get to know these girls and to get to know their families and to be on this journey with them. And, you know, we just inducted our newest class this past Saturday. And it's also really incredible to do this with a huge group of women. And so in many ways, we operate as a typical nonprofit. We write grants, we do fundraisers. Um, to pay for the work that we do with the girls. But then the scholarships are funded by a philanthropic model that's popular in the U.S. Um, called a giving circle. Are you familiar with those?
0: No, I'm not.
1: So they're really cool. So giving circles, basically the idea is that people coalesce around a common interest and pool their money to impact the interest. And so there are lots of different giving circles in the U.S., Ours, the idea is that women give $100 for each of the six years that the girls are in the program. And so I'm giving $600. Well, $600 doesn't get a girl to college, but I coalesce with this whole group. And as a group, our money pools, and that's what creates the $5,000 scholarships for each girl. And so it takes about 10 women to create one scholarship. And those women become sort of the the virtual and if they happen to be local, the physically present support circle for the girls around their journey. And we allow women to be as involved as they want to. So some women just want to be financial donors. Some women want to be mentors. Some women want to come to programs here or there. And it works out really well because each class has about 50 to 70 women supporting them. And so... Nobody has to give too much in order for the class to thrive. Um, So it has been this really cool model. And actually we allow women to come from anywhere in the world to be a giving circle, to be part of the giving circle. And so we have women from about 32 or 3 states and then about 6 different countries. We even have um, women in the giving circle from Australia. Yeah, that's amazing. How How do you get involved in the giving circle? So it, um, our website is www.circletheloose.org, And, um, there is a option to choose become a Miha and that tells you all about it. Um, it's pretty straightforward. Um, and once you sign on, you can choose how, how you want to be engaged. Amazing. Well, I will,
0: and I will include that link in the episode notes so people can easily go click on it and become involved. And I had goosebumps while you were talking then. It was just incredible the story of how it happened and your energy and passion as you were speaking and and just the fact that every time you tell a story, it keeps reminding us that we're talking about real people and you're seeing real people and you hear these statistics and and then you see these <laughs> real people that that are those statistics and that you can you can do things once you see that and and do you feel that that has to change? There
1: are things you can do to, to help change that. It's exactly right. And for us, when we work with the girls, what we tell them is we have no expectation of what you need to do. We just want you to understand that your future is your choice and life doesn't have to happen to you. And I think for all of us, that's what we ultimately want, right? Is to understand that we have the power to make choices that can positively impact our life. And I think that when someone sees you and tries to hear you and to understand you, it's so powerful to realize, oh, I can dare to dream
0: this. Yes, holding that space and having that encouragement Mm -hmm. for them is just uh, an amazing Gosh, I can't even think of a word that, right. <laughs> that will sum that up. Yeah, it's just incredible, incredible. So, if there's anyone, well, I know there will be, just given the type of podcast this is and the the audience, the people who are listening who are interested in pursuing a cause themselves, or who mm-hmm. might be interested in starting a program or a nonprofit along similar or different causes or passion areas would you have any advice for them on on how to venture down that path or what to do to bring it to life
1: you know i think the, the i've now done two different nonprofits that are both still thriving with different models so one um was a really important program it was different from what was being offered but we partnered it with an existing nonprofit um, and so that provided it some infrastructure that we then didn't have to figure out. Um, the other was Circle of the Lease was born completely from scratch. And I think the important thing to realize or to discern um, when you're thinking about doing something like this is whether or not you can naturally be wed to something that already exists. And I say that because um, the infrastructure of starting nonprofit is incredibly complex we are eight years into circle the loose and we're still doing deep deep work and um it takes a lot of time to get established and we just have one part-time employee i'm a volunteer i'm not an employee with circle the loose um and so if at all possible if there's a way to to wed your idea with an existing nonprofit, I think that's a really wise way to go because it lets you immediate sort of immediately launch and really move forward, as opposed to getting bogged down in the infrastructure stuff. So that's my first bit of advice: is see, you know be humble enough to see if there's a natural way to coexist with something that currently is already there and to be sort of an extension of it. Um, but if there's not a natural way to do that, then I think that the thing that has been most profound in Circle the Loose's growth and success is how incredibly inclusive we have been in terms of our leadership structure. And so I I don't make decisions unilaterally. We've got this really, you know, from from day one, starting with the focus groups, it really built consensus. And so I think everybody who's in leadership for Circle the Least, whether it's our board members or whether it's our class captains who are the individual leaders that lead that process for six years for the girls, I think everyone feels profound ownership of the work we do because it's such an inclusive model. And so I say really, I, I, women do that so well. When we wrote our initial mission statement, we talked about... The history of women gathering in circles and how women change communities, how if you empower women, it's not just the individual women who change, but that whole communities change. And I think that is true from a leadership structure in terms of thinking of ideas and solutions like this is you know, be as broad as you can in terms of inclusivity in your leadership. That really makes this profound difference. Everybody feels ownership and really takes responsibility for helping helping something blossom.
0: I'm just hearing this theme the whole time you've been talking about inclusiveness and community and support and collaboration and working together as a part of the, the solo. <laughs> As opposed I guess to the solo go at it alone.
1: Right. You know, that's so interesting. I hadn't really thought about that. But I guess you're right. And I think it's interesting because there was a period where I felt so profoundly other and lonely. And I think probably I have pushed the envelope in my life to not feel that way. You know, to that was one of the things that I needed to I needed to create a sense of community and connection in my life. And um, I didn't really think about it till just this minute, but I think in many ways that's become my lived expression was finding a way to not feel other because on the surface, my ethnicity could have made me feel so other. And it sounds like you've found
0: some beautiful people to, to help with that, to, to be you know, part of your, your tribe or your support group. Yeah. Now I know that we've, briefly kind of touched on how you're an author as well and the new edition i've got sitting here right on my desk actually of beautiful you a radical guide to self-acceptance which is beautiful and the cover is amazing too it was such a beautiful little book too
1: oh to i so in the mail.
0: With cover yes <laughs> yeah it's amazing i can't remember i have the other one i should have got the the previous edition out um Look at, but it had a different looking cover, didn't it?
1: Yeah, it good. had a woman on it with this beautiful red hair and freckles. Mm, that's um, right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, congratulations first of all. Thank you <laughs>
0: for her being out in the world. And now I I know that many of those listening and and many of those who are obviously passionate about progressing social injustices and helping change the world are big-hearted and generous and and sometimes they have such a kind of giving nature that taking care of themselves and making themselves a priority can be dropped from the juggling act and I would love to know because I think there's some overlap here with with your book and and obviously with a lot of the work that that you've done whether you can share a bit about your book and how you think that it might help those who are having this tension or this struggle between giving so
1: much um, mm-hmm. and taking care of themselves I'm gonna talk for just a second about um like a little irony what or what my friends see as an irony in my irony in my life and then I'll come back to the book My college friends who knew me when I was working with young men in youth gangs um, are always so tickled that I work, they see my work around self-acceptance now. um, And they're just like, okay, that's really funny that you work with um, women or girls who struggle with liking themselves when you used to work with these men who were really violent. And they see it as really different work. (laughs) And for me, it's actually the same work. And what I have figured out is so much of our pain in life is really the result of a lack of awareness of our own self-worth. And what I figured out was a young man who is physically violent to somebody else or a woman who is violent to herself and how she talks to herself are actually not all that different. If you value yourself, you don't hurt other people. And if you value yourself, you don't hurt yourself. And we, I think the big pain of our lives, um, is that we've created a culture that makes us question our worth. And we want so much to be heard and seen and understood. And the reality is that the very first person we need that from is ourselves, and if we can begin to see our own worth, the whole world expands for us. And so I am not, some people will say, oh, Rosie, she's a body image activist. And I I technically am, but I'm a body image activist because of what you've already identified, which is that I'm a big like activist in general. And what I have figured out is that every single one of us is here on purpose. We each are one part of a solution that this world needs. And our life is meant to be the expression of that over and over again. Like there might be seven different manifestations of that we're supposed to be have over a lifetime or 17 or three. But if our relationship with ourselves isn't healthy enough for us to, to do that work, then we're not able to live on purpose. And so I wrote beautiful you to give people a tool where they could collect all the evidence of their worthiness. It's not a book where I tell the reader, hey, you should believe in yourself. It's a book where the reader gets to compile all of the proof, which is already inside of them, of how worthy they already are. It's a book that provides readers with a journey into relationships themselves that's not adversarial and that can be life-changing. Because I really think that... The thing that it takes us far too long to realize is there's nothing fundamentally wrong with us. We are fundamentally right simply because we exist. Because we, just like every other person, have a purpose that's uniquely ours. And if we don't embrace our purpose, then we're wasting the valuable time that we have on this planet. And so for me, I really wanted to give people an experience where they got to practice self-acceptance every single day and begin to recognize their humanity so they could go out and recognize and celebrate what they have to offer to the world.
0: Yeah, so beautiful. <laughs> so beautiful. And, so, and I love that it helps compile that evidence that is there because when we're in that space where we don't look at the evidence, really, do we? Right. We're just so caught up in our head and... And just taking someone through a process where they actually compile that, that evidence uh, is just so powerful. So would you be able to share any tips that might help people do this from the book, maybe some, just some examples of some tips that can help them uh, make themselves a priority and accept themselves in that process?
1: So I think one of, there are two bits of advice that I want to give from the book. Um, One is that understanding what self-acceptance is. Um, I think a lot of people are uncomfortable with the term self-love. It feels like too much and they're like, oh, I have too much evidence of the opposite. Um, And so I really like to encourage self-acceptance and self-acceptance is just your decision to not have an adversarial relationship with yourself. It's really sort of operating from a position of neutrality about what's going on with you. And so um, maybe you bounced a check and your initial response would be, I, um, you know, I'm so irresponsible, I'm so dumb, I have no business um, having any responsibility for our family's money. And when you're self accepting, that changes And the way that you look at everything is simply information. And so you bounce a check and you say, well, what is that trying to tell me? And the answer becomes, wow, that day that I wrote the check, I um, didn't have time to check on my online bank account. I was so busy. Or maybe the information is I have been really passive about asking people to pay me my invoices. And I need to be less passive about that because that impacts other areas of my life. Um, Everything simply becomes information and an opportunity to learn, and nothing is a judgment. And so when you're operating from a place of self-acceptance, you just release judgment and gather information for your journey that allows you to grow. But the other piece of it is, I, I hear lots of women say, oh, I know no one can be perfect. Um, so I don't expect myself to be perfect, but what's not being said is I want to be as close to perfect as as possible as this imaginary thing. And I think the really important thing for us to realize is that if there is no perfect, there actually can't be any imperfect either. There is nothing wrong with any of us. We are each meant for our own unique expression. And once you realize that, I mean, If I asked you, what's the opposite of dark? What would you say? Smart, I guess. Okay. And if I asked you, what's the opposite of small or short? What would you say? Tall. Right. So those can exist on a continuum, Mm -hmm. but because there is no perfect, there actually can't be an opposite of us. And so I think so often we think, well, if I'm not as close to perfect as possible, I'm imperfect. And the reality is None of us are imperfect. We're each meant to be these really cool, unique expressions in the world. And our unique expression is needed. We wouldn't have been placed here on this planet um, if we weren't needed. There's no mistake. And we are divine just as we are. And I think once you recognize that, it becomes a lot easier to let go of all the judgment you have of yourself. And when you let go of the judgment you have about yourself, you get to just live and actually give.
0: Yeah, it's a way of breaking through that black and white and either or thinking that so many exactly. of us seem to have, and and move forward and prosper. <laughs> yeah.
1: Exactly.
0: Yes. So do you do you feel, with all of the work that you've done around self acceptance, that that this plays a role in, in in giving and advocacy as as well? That it's it's a important, I guess balance or tension between giving to other and also loving and supporting yourself?
1: So um, this, I want to go back to teaching for a second because, you know, I thought that I would be a teacher for years. It is still being a high school teacher is still my favorite thing I've ever done. I think it's also the thing that I was best at. I was also fully consumed in it and I have no boundaries. Um, And I was really destructive. And I remember one of my students wrote me this note and it said, all of my students had gotten together and written me thank you notes. It was the sweetest thing. And one of the notes was from one of the boys and he said, 16 years old. He said, I fear that you will give until you give out. And I remember I was 22, 23. I remember thinking, what a lovely compliment. (laughs) Um, and then about two months later, I was in the emergency room. I passed out, um, at a pharmacy without identification, got sent to the emergency room as a Jane Doe and was really, really sick that the emergency room doctor said, you've got a sinus infection, you have bronchitis, you have a double infection and you have, you have tonsillitis and you are sick. And and I said, yeah, you know, I, I work at a high school. There are lots of germs there. And he was like, ah, I think that this is beyond just being around germs. You've probably been sick for a while. And it started off as one thing and you waited too long. And now it's all these things. Ultimately, he, uh, he, when I got released from the hospital, he said, I don't want, it was a Wednesday. He said, I don't want you to go back to, to work until Monday. And I said, sure. And I was promptly back at school the next day. And that weekend I woke up and was coughing up blood. And so I drove myself back to the emergency room. And because this is the kind of luck I have, the exact same doctor was on duty. And he walked in and he said, I'm willing to keep seeing you here. If you're willing to keep landing yourself here. And I was so indignant. I was like, you know, what are you talking about? I I I haven't done any of this. Um, You know, I did not do this to myself. This is just what happens when you work in high school. And so... Ultimately, he would not release me to go back to work. He made me sit home for two weeks. And I was the first three days that I was on this couch, I was miserable. And on day four, I thought, well, if I allow for the possibility that he might be a little bit right, what does this mean about me? And what I realized was um, so much of my worth came from being good. So much of my worth was defined in how much I gave and not simply because I existed. I didn't feel worthy because I existed. I felt worthy because of how much I sacrificed. Um, And as I worked to get healthy, I realized I don't know how to teach in a way that's not compulsive. I don't know how to do this moderately. I only know how to do this extremely. And I recognized at that time That if I did it extremely, I would keep landing in the emergency room. And that actually by being extreme, I did my students more of a disservice because I couldn't consistently be there. And so I gave until I gave out because I wanted them not to have to sacrifice anything. But by giving until I gave out, I sacrificed myself and meant that they went large swaths of time without a trained teacher in the classroom um and so for me i i had this moment and it was heartbreaking where i thought i can't come back because i don't know how to do this differently but they deserve someone who shows up like i will run myself into the ground and end up passed out in a pharmacy you know with an ambulance called um despite myself despite my best effort um and, and so I just realized I had to, to put the brakes on myself. And so one of the things that I want to say is that it's really important as you, as you consider how you want to live your purpose and passion in the world and what the best expression is, to recognize a few things. And one is what your blind spots are and to figure out how to put the brakes on that. But then the other is to get what I call really pure And so for me, I actually had to come up with with a continuum. Um, And I call it the whole heart of continuum. And I've blogged about it. So if people want to go on my blog and find it, they can find the whole detailed continuum there. But before I thought about this really proactively, I realized that the way that I came to decision-making was really very basic. The first thing I figured out was whether or not I could technically do it. And so if you asked me, to participate in the preschool bake sale technically i can do that like i can technically make some baked goods now are my baked goods all that anything to write home about they're they're not but technically i can bake cookies uh, if you ask me to fix your carburetor i can't. Te- i can't technically do that so that was a clean no but anything that i could technically do i then went to the second tier of of my consideration which was am i technically available and so maybe the bake sale is wedged between a commitment I have in the morning and a commitment I have in the afternoon. But I've, do I technically have those two hours available? I do. So I wouldn't consider, well, do I need to change clothes from a morning commitment to afternoon? Like I wouldn't do any of that. I'd be like, well, technically I'm available. I'll just make it work. And I think that one of the things that's important for big hearted women to understand is that in general, you're really competent. You're capable of lots of things, but just because you're capable of something doesn't mean it's a pure experience for you to say yes to. And that's where you have to get really honest about what, whether or not doing this thing will be wholehearted for you. And so for me, there's sort of six things I ask when I, I consider when I'm asked to do something. And the first is, am I thrilled to be asked? And so you know that you've gotten an email before, and someone's asked you to do something, and you think uh, as you go to your calendar, "Oh, please let there be something there. <laughs> like, please, <laughs> please let it not be possible for me to do that." Well, then automatically you're not thrilled to be asked, and just from the get go, you need to say no. You don't need to justify; you just need to say no. And I'll talk more about that in a second. The second thing is: Are you happy to prepare? So once you look at that, you know someone's asking you to do something. Um, and it's maybe something out of your wheelhouse. Are you okay with preparing for that thing that's out of your wheelhouse? Do you want to devote the time, you know, your child's teacher says, Hey, can you come teach about hedgehogs? And you're like, oh, I know nothing about hedgehogs, hedgehogs. Um, like, are you going to be happy to prepare, prepare that? And if you're not, then you need to say like, ah, oh, no, that's just not going to work. Or maybe you're happy technically to prepare for it. But when you look at that day, that day's full or the weeks before it are full and you think, ah, oh, that's not a fit for my schedule. The next is, are you eager to go? So one of the things that I found as I, um, became a mom was that I don't really like missing bedtime. (laughs) So sometimes I get asked to do things at night and I'm like, Oh, I don't want to miss bedtime. And so ultimately I came up with, I won't miss more than one bedtime a week. Like that's just for me, that's my limit. And so I'll sometimes get asked to to do stuff. And I look at it and I'm like, Oh, I'm already doing something a night that week. And that means missing bedtime. And so I'll say to the person, like, thank you so much, but I am only able to miss one bedtime a week because I know that come that day, like as I'm, you know, pulling dinner out of the oven or whatever and rolling out the door, I'm going to be so sad and not eager to go. And it's not fair to the place where I'm going to arrive that I'm torn about it. Um, The fourth, which is easy, is can I be joyfully present? Um, And for a long time, I would uh, commit to doing stuff and have a bad attitude before going, and then get there and be joyfully present. And then on the way home, I'd be like, see, you have the worst attitude. You need to improve your attitude. And then I thought, you know what? It's just not enough to be joyfully present when I'm there. I want to be wholehearted all the way through, which is how I came up with this continuum. Then the next one is... um, am I willing to move trash? Which is a funny little saying, but I have a friend who likes to describe people as trash movers or not trash movers. And what she means by that is after an event's over, the people who are like, all right, in it, they're, you know, they're picking up the plates, they're moving, you know, they're willing to take out trash, they're willing to do the heavy lifting. Um, you know, There's those sort of people after an event, and then there are the people who are also part of an event, but somehow they get lost on their phone, or they disappear to the bathroom. And if I'm going to be a part of something, then I need to be a part of the fun stuff and the hard stuff too. Um, And so I always have to be willing to move trash with it is how I define it. And then the last is happy to sort of bask in the afterglow of it, which is also not the hard part. But I have found for me that taking myself through the wholehearted continuum allows me to really carefully discern whether or not an opportunity is a good fit for me. And then if I discern that it's not a good fit for me, what I've realized is my no is someone else's yes. My no is someone else's pure fit. And if I say no faster, I get out of the way of someone finding their purpose. And for the longest time, I didn't recognize that. I thought that I was, you know, being helpful by saying a half-hearted yes. And what I've realized now is that I'm most helpful by my no or my yes being wholehearted and that if I say no wholeheartedly the, it will land on the right person
0: Ah, oh, yes I've never thought of it that way my no is someone else's yes uh, I was soaking all of that up very much and I'm sure other people listening will be
1: as well because so many of us have trouble saying no <laughs> yeah and so then what it does is it opens up your life in a way That you do have the time to take care of yourself. And had I realized that at 22, I could have kept teaching. I could have said, oh, so this means I don't have to be the soccer coach. And this means I don't have to be the director of student activities. Like I can say my magic happens here and just give my magic there. But what I thought back then was to be good meant you had to say yes to everything. Um, And I just wasn't boundaried enough. And because I wasn't boundary enough, I didn't take care of myself enough. And so now what I recognize is when I tell someone, no, I'm doing them a favor because they're getting the chance for someone else to show up who's really excited about the opportunity rather than me show up and sort of have an inner dialogue going on while I try to feign excitement about the (laughs) activity. You're doing everyone a favor yourself, the person you said
0: no to, the the people out there that you're advocating for, because you now have more time for them too
1: and (laughs) And energy. Yeah, if you believe that you're here on purpose, well, then you need to believe that everybody else is here on purpose. And so, your no is an act of faith in humanity that the right person for it's going to show up for it.
0: Yes. Yes. Ah, I love this. I could just keep talking to you all day. I think I'll just keep asking you questions and soaking up your wisdom.
1: <laughs> I love it. Well, I, I want your wisdom too, so we'll have
0: to uh, make it more of a dialogue. And...
1: <laughs> Thank you. Oh,
0: no, I'm loving it. I'm soaking
1: it all up.
0: I'm I'm curious to know as well around like I know that you've um, done a, a lot of work through your teaching and your writing and. And through the non-profits but you've also been giving back in heaps of other ways as well through your ambassadorships and I know you do workshops and speaking and lots of things like that so for those who are listening and and wanting to make a difference in some way in different ways do you have any suggestions for them and how they can use their uniqueness and and their passion and and what they have available to them to
1: make a difference in some way you know I think that the thing that I found for me um, is the importance of just finding that emotional connection and then going with the deepest gesture you can offer from that emotional connection. And so really like what keeps coming back to your mind, what keeps you up at night or wanders into your head while you're driving that thing What is, for your life right now, the deepest expression you can offer it? Um, And it might be, wow, I really care about rescuing animals. We live in an apartment. We're not allowed to have animals. So the deepest expression I can offer it right now is volunteering to walk dogs at a shelter or donating to a shelter. but. I think just get as clear as possible about the thing that keeps coming up for you and finding the deepest gesture at the moment that you can express. It doesn't have to necessarily be public. It just has to be really true for you.
0: What a powerful question. That's the type of question that a coach like me loves. (laughs) (laughs) I love all the powerful questions that you've been giving and also just the, I I guess, the forward moving, uh, obviously the coach in me (laughs) is soaking Mm -hmm. all of that up and the conscious boundaries and rules to set on oneself. Um, Oh, that's a horrible word, rules and even boundaries actually, but I'm sure you and people listening (laughs) know what I mean. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah uh So, I'm but the other thing I want to ask, which I think we've touched on, is around the challenges and the difficulties that maybe you've experienced in being an advocate and speaking up in the way that you do. And mm. some of those we've we've touched on around boundaries and saying no and things <laughs> and taking care of yourself. Um, but have there been any any other big ones that jump out at you when i when I mention challenges and difficulties when when pursuing
1: social good so self care is a you know a deep one and one that I come back to. Boundaries in general are one that I come back to. I have to keep practicing them um, but I'd say the other thing is that everything has a life cycle and really respecting that and 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 giving it you know the time it needs and so and giving you the time that you need, and so I think that part of the creative process is to to be super excited to to have great output to to sustain 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 and then there may be a moment where you need to go fallow, and for me, that fallow period is really hard because it's the antithesis of how I sort of see myself in the world, but what I've found now through different cycles is that it's a really necessary process and I need to respect it and I need to not panic about it um and I used to feel really panicky about it um and so giving yourself during that time the patience to ask like what are the deep questions what's the movement that's coming to me in this and not not forcing yourself to smile through it or to um Make nice during it, like really to respect that part of the process. I think it's a really inherent part of the creative process that you might need to say goodbye to some things, let them go, mourn them, see what's happening, you know, be patient for what's happening subconsciously. And then one day this little idea pops up and it's this thing that you're like, huh, well, if I were to ask more questions about that, where would it take me? Um, and I think that sometimes as women, we can feel a sense of urgency about, around profound productivity. And I think it's really important to have profound patience in the creative cycle.
0: Yes. I love hearing you talk about this. This is something that comes up a lot in my business coaching because Mm -hmm. people just, yeah, they want to be forward moving all the time and productive all the time. And I just find it so interesting that, That we accept that's not how life works in other areas, but when it comes to creativity and productivity, we have different expectations. Like we know for exercise, even athletes don't just do rigorous, full-on exercise all the time. They have rest periods, they have off seasons, you know, you can't physically exercise all the time. But when it comes to productivity and creativity... And even motivation, we just expect that you know they don't mm. go in waves. We've got to have it all the time; otherwise, we're failing if we don't. Right? So, yeah, I just loved hearing how you
1: talked through that. I know that that will speak to
0: a lot of people.
1: Yeah, you know, there are times where I'm like, "Wow, I'm never going to be able to write another meaningful sentence again." Mm-hmm. And then one day, I wake up and the sentence is there. You know, and I'm like, oh, "Sweet relief, it's there, um because I had legitimately started to believe it's never coming back, and I need to go be a librarian and and so I think just trusting yourself and your process and being patient and we've so much profound patience with others, and we really need to have that patience with ourselves, yes,
0: yes, now, we're nearing the end, but I'd like to sneak in if you could uh, sure. let me know whether there's any." people or things that inspire you to keep on doing this and to keep dreaming for others and to give back and to speak up in the way you do?
1: The really exciting thing to me is that I feel as if every person I come across is an opportunity for inspiration and that what I most seek, as we sort of, as you helped me discover earlier, is emotional connection. and so I thought, I mean, I feel almost daily that I'm inspired by someone I ran into at the grocery store or, um, just a sense of awe. Um, so I, I think that's a way that I try to live my life, but I do know that as I've become a mom, that there's this real sense of awareness of my son watching sort of my every move mm-hmm. and wanting him to understand how you build a life and how you design a way a way of being in the world and so I know that there's so much of 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 what I do that is around being inspired by the idea that I'm being watched I love that because they just soak up everything don't they do (laughs) and I said something last week and he said he's eight and he said do you have to make a point about everything? (laughs) (laughs) I said, I kind of do. It's sort of what moms do. We make a point about a lot. (laughs) It's in my job description. (laughs) Yeah. It was just this funny moment where I was like, well, do you see how that could have felt? And he was like, oh, do you have to make a point about everything? And I was like, yeah, I've got like 10 more years to make points. So (laughs) I've got a lot that I have to make sure it gets across. Well, um, I've got your full
0: attention. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so do other people. I, I loved how you gave the, um, how you told the story earlier about the boy, was it that said to you, I fear that you will give or until you give out, you know, it's people are soaking up, aren't they? What we're doing all the time, even when we're not aware of it.
1: You know, I wrote him a note about 10 years later. He, 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 Sent me an email and said, "I just, you know, I think of you often, and I want you to know that I'm a dad." And I thought, "You're 16 years old. You have no <laughs> business being a dad." And I was like, "Well, obviously he is not 16. He's just frozen at 16 in my head." <laughs> and so I wrote him back and said, so "Congratulations." But then I said, um, "You know, I, I, you probably don't even remember that you wrote this note, but you wrote this note, and at the time, you know, I, I thought it was a compliment, and then I realized it was this warning and." And it was so profound for me when I realized it was a warning to see what you saw. And thank you for, for that gift.
0: What a beautiful thing to be reflected back and, and told too. So you don't realize that these little notes or things we say sometimes can have such a big impact on someone.
1: Yes, so true.
0: So is there, before we finish, is there anything that that we can do, those who are listening, can do to help? Progress some of the things that we, you you're passionate about and that you've been talking about today. I'll share the links that we've mentioned, including the blog post and about the giving circle and and all your websites. Um, but is there anything is there anything else we can do to to help create this vision for the world that you that you have?
1: You know, I think the most powerful thing that we can all do is to recognize that we're here on purpose and to go go live that purpose um, with with no apology. And, you know, when we do that, when we each do that and when we have confidence that the person next to us is doing that, we start to create the world that we all imagine. And that for me is so exciting to recognize that we can all be so empowered as to do that. And I think that in terms of women, I think women are, can be real game changers for our entire world and I I look I am valuing the conversations I'm having with women so much right now because I think we're really changing the conversation and we are voting with our time and our dollar and our voice and that's super exciting and we're you know making sure that we're seeing different things and we're challenging assumptions and I'm super excited about what the world we're creating right now because women are fully and powerfully stepping into themselves.
0: Yes, me too. It's just a really exciting thing to to see and be
1: part of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what's next for you, Rosie? What's next? <laughs> well, so I'm in a bit of one of these fallow periods where I'm like, "Huh, what are the possibilities?" One thing that I want to share with your listeners, if anyone is um, a yoga teacher, I created a curriculum to go with Beautiful You with um, Anna Guest who is the creator of Curvy Yoga, which is a yoga yoga teachers program that's for all bodies and abilities for yoga. But it it's called Wholehearted, and it weds beautiful you with body acceptance yoga. Um, and it's just an affordable curriculum that folks can buy. It's a four week class that they can teach and offer as often as they want. And you can find it on my website under Wholehearted. Um, and so that's an opportunity if folks are using. Um, teaching yoga as part of their expression in the world. But for me, I'm looking at, you know, what's next for me creatively. I I teach um, body image at a university, but I'm looking at, you know, what's maybe the next thing that I want to be writing, which I think is going to be around self-care. Although I've been really... A student of grief lately. My mom passed away um, suddenly just over a year ago. And um, grief has been this really profound teacher to me. And so I was talking to a friend who um, is in the midst of a grief experience and was sort of telling her what gifts she could anticipate from grief. And she said, I think you need to write that book. Um, and I don't know if I have the courage yet to write that book, but I'm playing with maybe what is it that I want to be writing next. And so... Hopefully um, the very clear sentence will come to me sometime soon so yes. I can do it.
0: Yes, with patience.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: <laughs> well, I look forward to when it when it does come, reading what comes out of it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rosie, for making time to talk to us today. I, I It's been such a privilege. My heart is just so full right now, and I've been scribbling down so many notes as you've been <laughs> – as you've been talking and I know that that those listening will be doing the same so thank you thank you thank you thank you
1: oh thank you it's so helpful and um powerful to me to to get the opportunity to think these you know to think about these things and to further consider my own expression in the world so thank you for the opportunity and your generous spirit
0: thank you for listening to the dream for others podcast with Naomi Arnold For episode notes, further inspiration, and access to my free resources, please visit naomiarnold.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would love for you to please subscribe, leave a review in iTunes, and share it with your friends or peers. Let's continue to dream for others, and I'll talk to you soon.